Let me situate us in the narrative briefly. After Abimelech, God raises up two judges to save Israel from herself. This is all we're going to say about those two judges. Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Ishkar, judged Israel for 23 years. After Tola arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel for 22 years. Despite Tola and Jair's judgeship, Israel would continue their downward spiral into sin and apostasy. The gods to whom Israel have repeatedly given themselves now rule over them. And when things are worse than they have ever been, Israel will once again call out to the Lord their God for a savior. What follows that we will cover this morning in chapters 10, 11, and 12 will be dark. In fact, some of the darkest stories we've seen in Judges. God will send a deliverer to his people when they respond with repentance instead of mere regret. But while this deliverer displays diplomatic skills and military prowess, he will prove to be tragically flawed. This morning, like in so much of this series, we learned something about sin, its nature, how it functions and what it is. And we learned something about deliverance. In this sermon, we will see that sin leads to slavery and only Jesus can save us completely. That is the main idea of the sermon and I hope we'll see it together by the end. Sin leads to slavery and only Jesus can save us completely. To get there, we'll first explore the relationship between idolatry and captivity that's presented to us in the 10th chapter, and then we'll explore the tragic hero that is Jephthah the judge, both his triumphs and his tragic flaws. Look with me in the book of Judges, chapter 10, in verses 6 through 8. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Listen to the list of gods that they serve. The Baals, Ashtaroth, gods of Syria, gods of Sidon, gods of Moab, gods of Ammonites, gods of the Philistines. Notice these are seven gods from the seven surrounding nations who will oppress Israel in this narrative. Seven is a number that conveys completeness and totality. The Lord created the world in seven days. The writer of Judges has in view complete covenant betrayal. And here's what I think he wants us to see. Every time Israel worshipped a nation's idol or a nation's god, they became that nation's subjects. Every time Israel worshipped the nation's gods, they became that nation's subjects. You see, there's something here. There's a relationship between idolatry and captivity. 
There's a relationship between idolatry and captivity. The text says that God, quote, sold them into the hands of the Philistines and Ammonites. Now, this isn't like a financial transaction. This does not mean God broke his covenant promises or neglected his people. It does mean, however, that he gave them what they wanted. He gave them over to the gods that they worshipped. What is the punishment for idolatry? More idolatry. The Israelites get the gods they want. And once they get them, they must live with their rule. They quickly and repeatedly find that idols, false gods, do not deliver on their promises. God gave his people into what they wanted so that his people would find out what they want is not what they thought. The language of God giving people over to their sin is not only in the Old Testament, it recurs in the New. Consider the language of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome in the first chapter. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is what Paul is saying. That God has given us up to that which we have worshiped. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is a horrific exchange on our part. We exchange the glory of God for silly idols. We exchange the glory of the creator for the fading glory of the stuff in the created world. God then allows these things to become for us what we hope they would. But what we find, some find sooner, some find later, all find eventually, is that our desires were wrong. The judgment for idolatry is more idolatry. Brothers and sisters, in some sense, it's not wrong or unbiblical to say that God gives us what we want. And that is why I'm so uh, burdened by gospel presentations that speak much of heaven but little of Jesus. That speak much of where you're going to go when you die but little about living for Jesus today. Some people think they're Christians because they want to go to heaven when they die. But here they have no interest in Jesus. Church is something you suffer through at best. The Bible is something that I know I should read, but I just don't want to because there's other things I want to do. My desires never change. I just need eternal fire insurance. Someone or something else has captivated our hearts. Whatever captivates our hearts, so too captures our hearts. So too recurring in the New Testament is the truth that sin leads to captivity. Idolatry leads to captivity. Sin leads to slavery. Jesus says it in John chapter 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We could use several examples of how such idols entice us and capture us, but I'll just use one easy one that's a temptation for all of us, money. You want to live for money. 
Go for it. But it will rule your life. It will control the things you think about. It will control the things you want. It will control the things you do. And it will call your shots. It will be to you a God, a relentless God. You worship the God of ambition, okay. You can worship it. But it will be to you a snare. The God of money, the God of ambition, the God of success, the God of comfort, the God of status that you worship will become the God who lords over you and oppresses you because this God does not want what's best for you. Over and over in the judges, we see that there is a relationship between idolatry and captivity, between sin and slavery. And we are 10 chapters into this joint. How many times are we going to see this play out? You might be thinking. Israel gets saved by God from something that they did. And then they immediately begin to worship a false God. And then they get in trouble. And then when they get in trouble, they cry out to God for God to save them from something that they did. And the cycle just repeats and repeats and repeats. And we might be thinking, I've heard some version of this sermon for months now. How many times are we going to do this? But I think that not only is that a question that we ask of the text, but I think that is a question that the text is asking of us. How many times am I going to do this? How many times am I going to lose interest in the living God and turn to the gods of sex and money and power and status? Sure, we ask questions this morning, but the Bible asks of us fundamental questions. So they cry out to the Lord. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you, verse 10, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines? All the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Malonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, hear these chilling words, I will save you no more. Go cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you. We've talked about this several weeks ago, so I'm not going to go in depth. The sermon is on YouTube. But there's a difference between regret and repentance. And as long as God's people are in regret, his posture towards them is simply this, I will save you no more. But when the people of Israel say, listen, whatever you will do to us, we accept. We're not just bummed about the consequences of our sin, but we are repentant about the causes and the acts of our sin. Then God will deliver them. Meet now the answer to their prayer in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Jephthah, the unlikely deliverer. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. 
Jephthah is a mighty warrior, but he is also an exile. He's the son of a prostitute that got run out of town. I love how the text says he lived in the land of Tob with a bunch of worthless fellows. He became something of an outlaw, something of a tough guy, maybe even a mafia don. When the Ammonites make war with Israel, the elders get together and say, man, who can help us? Who can get us out of this mess? Well, what about Jephthah? That bad guy, the bad boy, the tough guy, the outlaw outside of town. Jephthah could probably do something about this. So they go and get him. Now, if you were to read the whole narrative, he's going to take some convincing. I mean, oh, now you need me. You kicked me out because of who I was, but now you need what I offer. So you're all about, old oh, Jephthah, the mighty judge and deliverer. You'll notice that the Israelites treat their leaders kind of like they treat God. <laughs> we want nothing to do with you, but now we need you and we really love you. In any event, Jephthah will prove to be an efficient if nothing else, leader. Before fighting, he embraces diplomacy. If you were to go on and read this whole chapter, which we don't have time to do, he argues from history, he argues from legal precedent, and he makes a theological argument, with Ammonite theology even, that the Ammonites have no right to attack and occupy Israel on the faulty premise that Israel lives in Ammonite land. He's going back and forth with the king of the Ammonites. But the king is not convinced. Here, Jephthah and the king in chapter 11, verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. This is sort of the climax of his diplomacy. He reaches through history, through legal precedent, and through theology. He reaches this conclusion, I've done nothing wrong. I have not sinned against you, and this war is unjust. But let the Lord be the judge between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Verse 28, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So in the words of Vince McMahon, let's get ready to rumble. The spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he leads his army to defeat the Ammonites. The Lord, quote, gave them into his hand. Look with me in verse 33. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities in as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Perhaps this shrewd diplomacy and this military might are reasons why Hebrews 11 includes Jephthah in the great cloud of witnesses, the hall of faith, if you will. But Jephthah, as we will now see, is a tragic hero. Jephthah is deeply flawed. Yes, he's a shrewd diplomat and a skilled warrior, but something deep within him is unsettled. Something deep within him is not right. And before going into battle, Jephthah makes a vow with God. Look at it with me in verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, 
Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up in a burnt offering. God, this is how committed I am to you. Oh, Jephthah makes a show of his piety. If you give me victory, I will give you an offering, a real offering, a painful offering, a big-time offering. I'll give you a burnt offering, a sacrifice of whatever comes out the door of my house as soon as I get home first. God, it's yours. Verse 34, one of the saddest verses in this whole book. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Jephthah's foolishness will cost his daughter her life. She goes off to mourn, and the text leads us to believe that Jephthah carries through with the vow he has made. What in the world do we make of this episode? I think we have to say three things and make a quick observation. First, in the Bible, child sacrifice is strictly forbidden. Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 12, Jeremiah 19, Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 23. It is detestable, an abomination. The Lord hates it. All these are quotes from those passages. And I would add, it's practiced in the surrounding nations. So this isn't hypothetical. It's not taboo like it is in our day. It's just clearly off limits in our culture. No one has to tell you, hey, don't sacrifice your kid. You kind of intuitively know you should not sacrifice your kid. But if the people around you are sacrificing their kids, maybe you think that maybe that's what the gods want. The God of Israel says the true and living God does not do that. He requires not the sacrifice of children. In fact, it is strictly forbidden. It's the first thing that we have to note. The second thing that we must note is that the scriptures warn against these sorts of vows that Jephthah does. This is not proving Jephthah is holy. It's actually doing the opposite. Just don't make them. Listen to Deuteronomy 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will, make, will require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But <laughs> if you refrain from vowing you won't be guilty of sin. So you shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Here's the point. Our words matter. The things we say matter. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. A vow with God is not to be taken lightly. So here's an idea written into the law of God. Just don't do it. Our words are still powerful. Our words are still dangerous. Lord willing, they won't cost our lives, but the one who teaches is going to be judged by the content of their teaching. So be careful. The scripture teaches with many words come many problems. Think before you speak. The scriptures warn 
against these silly, arrogant vows. Third, and most uh, specifically, there are biblical provisions for stupid vows like these. Listen to this in Leviticus 5. I wish that somebody around Jephthah actually remembered the Bible. (laughs) This itself, this whole episode is a picture of what happens when people don't know who they are, when the people of God don't know who God is and have no knowledge of what the Bible says. Leviticus 5.4, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or do good, any sort of rash oath that they swear... And it's hidden from him when he comes to know it. He realizes his guilt in any of these. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he's committed, he shall bring the Lord an offering. Here's the point. If you make a crazy vow with somebody that you just cannot keep, maybe a vow like, hey, whatever walks through my house, I'm going to kill it and give it to you. If you make an insane vow in the heated moment, there is a pathway to repentance. There is a pathway to restoration. Don't do it. You take a lamb, you bring that lamb to the priest, and the priest will make atonement for your sins. It is better to not commit murder and repent than it is to just carry on down a road of foolishness. I love this. God gave his people a process by which they could get themselves out of trouble for the sins they've created. Repent. Realize your foolishness. Bring an offering, a lamb offering, and the priest will make atonement for your sins. You wish you could grab Jephthah and scream, you don't have to do this. In fact, you should not do this this. Well, our observation, why does Jephthah approach God the way he does? Theology matters. (laughs) He has a pagan moral code. He's living in the land of Tob with rough and tumbly folks. Violence is second nature. You fight, you scrap. So the idea of killing someone, I think, I think he thought a servant was going to come out first and that person would just be killed. And violence is just casual. He has a pagan moral code. He runs with bad dudes like Ted warned us of last week, and he acts like a bad dude. He is utterly desensitized to violence. He has a pagan moral code, and second, he has a pagan understanding of God. This is how he thinks you approach God. This isn't how you approach God. God doesn't need anything from you. You don't honor him by making a display of your piety. Oh, this rashness rises from a deep, deep flaw in Jephthah's character. Because one more time in this text, that flaw will rear its head again. If you will remember when Gideon wins his big battle, the men of Ephraim are not really happy because they're mad they got left out, right? And you, you read that and you're kind of frustrated by that. Like, hey, this big battle just got won. And you guys are so mad at it, you're, like, that you weren't a part of it. You're not even celebrating the win. But Gideon sort of reasons with them, and and they they get through it together. Well, once again, Jephthah leading against the Ammonites. Battle is won. And guess who was sidelined again? Guess who was forgotten again? Guess who was not included in the group text again? Ephraim. So they come back. You forgot about us again. How many times? 
They're mad. They complain to Jephthah. Let's see his response in chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. When I called you, you didn't save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. All these Israelites. He will go on to slaughter 42,000 of his kinsmen because he was insulted and angry. Jephthah is a tragic savior. Yeah, he delivers Israel from the Ammonites, but you can't get to the end of this passage and think very highly of him. All of his military exploits, his theological and legal and political diplomacy, it, it all just kind of feels tainted because it is tainted. He delivers Israel from the Ammonites, but he's a sinner. And what does sin do? It enslaves. It makes things worse. Sin never helps. And this sin, his sin, will not lead Israel into holiness and prosperity, but deeper and deeper into sin. Israel is, at this point of Judges, unrecognizable and indistinguishable from the pagan nations around her. She's fighting internally a civil war. And the very most grotesque acts of pagan worship are present in her midst. By the end of tw chapter 12, we have seen child sacrifice and civil war. Now, when we read this story, we long for a Jephthah who's not Jephthah. <laughs> we long for a Jephthah who doesn't kill his daughter, if you will. We long for a Jephthah who doesn't respond with well, this is what you did to me back then. I'm mad that you're coming up to me now, so forget you. I'm going to kill you. Let's move on. We long for a patient Jephthah, a just Jephthah, a better Jephthah. We long for and look for a deliverer who is not a sinner. And I think that's the point. Because ultimately, sinners cannot lead sinners out of sin. No, we need a guide. To break this cycle of sin, slavery, sin, slavery, sin, slavery, sin, slavery. We need someone who can deal with not just the slavery, but can deal with the sin. We need someone that is not corrupted, who has no fatal flaw, who has no pride deep in their hearts. We need someone who, like Jephthah, is qualified by his life experiences Jephthah is qualified to go fight. He was exiled. He lived a tough lifestyle. He had to negotiate. I mean, the thing that he comes to do at this moment in Israel's history, he has been prepared for by his entire life. We need someone who's qualified by their life, but, but with that doesn't come a whole bunch of other stuff. 
Well, like Jephthah, Jesus would be rejected by his own. The Bible says he came to his own, but they received him not. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Like Jephthah, Jesus would spend time in the wilderness on his own. Jephthah spends his life in exile. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, will spend 40 days in the wilderness. But unlike Jephthah, Jesus won't use that time to hang out with uh, the wrong crowd, right? He won't use that time to sin. He'll use that time to grow closer, obeying, rather, his father. My friend, there's one who's better than Jephthah, who offers us salvation, who offers us a way out of captivity. My invitation for you this morning is to turn from your idols and to turn to the one who can save you completely. Remember that exchange I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon when we were thinking about the nature between idolatry and captivity. The Bible teaches that we exchange the glory of God for created things. And this ends in a perpetual cycle of us turning from God. Well, that would not be the only exchange in the story. That God would meet that exchange where we exchange his glory for the glory of created things. God would meet that exchange with a greater exchange. Because on the cross... Jesus would take the punishment for our sin that we deserved and he would give us the righteousness that his perfection has earned. This is what we see in Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3. In chapter 1, Paul is teaching that we have exchanged the glory of God for stuff. This is what that means. We don't worship the creator, we worship the creature. And when we worship the creature, we practice sin. And what does Jesus teach about that? When you practice sin, you are enslaved by sin. It's calling the shots. It's in charge of your life. You think you are, but you're not. Oh, if you worship the grind, the grind is your God. If you worship success, success is your God. If you worship the perfect image of a family with a nice house and a nice place and a nice school, that is your God. We don't know we're worshiping the creature, but we have no interest and no taste for the creator. Romans chapter 2, the people of God are saying, man, we don't worship idols made of dirt. We don't worship images. But Paul says to them, you should then know that your righteousness is not enough. The standard that you judge others with is the standard you will be judged by. The irreligious pagan nations are condemned for this great exchange creature for creator and then Paul says you religious folks you've made the same exchange you worship the creature rather than the creator and in Romans chapter 3 he says we are all condemned before God because we have all sinned and we've all fallen short the pagan nations and Israel herself the irreligious and the religious But thanks be to God, he says, that the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. 
that there is a way for unrighteous people to be made righteous. There is a way for slaves of sin to be freed by grace. There is a way for people who have made a fatal exchange to receive a life-giving exchange. That to all who have exchanged the glory of the creator for created stuff, God offers his righteousness for their sin. Jesus will say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burden. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You don't have to live for the gods of the nations anymore. Jesus the Christ, to whom Jephthah is but a tragic shadow, a crooked line across the pages of Scripture. And that line points to the cross where God met our sin with righteousness where Jesus himself has saved us completely. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for us this morning is that we would know the freedom you have purchased us at the cross. That the Lord Jesus Christ has taken on himself the punishment that we deserve and has given us the righteousness that he has earned. Lord, give us spiritual eyes to see the reality of our spiritual condition. Lord, where we are captive to idols, show us. Where we are enslaved in patterns of sin, Lord, open our eyes that we might see and that we might repent, that we might call out to you and we might receive the grace that you have promised us, a grace that leads to freedom and a grace that leads to life. Lord, you did not free us that we would just long for slavery back in Egypt, that we would long for persecution by the Ammonites, if you will. Help us then live for you. Lord, for if we are yours, then no one can capture us. No one can take us. And you will lead us to streams of living water. So Spirit, I now ask that you would apply this sermon to a hundred people in a hundred ways. That none of us would leave this room the way that we came into it that this encounter with your word would be an encounter with you. In hope and faith we pray. Amen.